Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and a parent of two young adults, one of which is diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello and welcome, Nancy. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Sylvia. How are you? Good, good. And I'm so happy to have you on today. Uh, I know we've worked together for a while uh, through many educator professional development programs, and uh, I love the energy and excitement you bring um, when you're Thank working you. with that. <laughs> so, um, and, and I wanted to make sure that I could bring that here uh, to my listeners, because I think it's really important uh, what you do and your background and the level of quality that you bring and your group brings to this type of work. And as I say that, um, I know this particular episode is about, um, you know, di- the diagnosis process and what about a diagnosis and how do we, how do we do that? So um, at first though, can you give a little bit of background on who you are and, and what you do? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I'm a pediatric neuropsychologist, which I always think has way too many syllables to it, too, <laughs> too big of words, but um, yeah. it really just means that I work with children. And um, the neuropsychologist aspect is, um, is really defined by the process of a neuropsych eval, which is really usually around diagnosing um, some uh, challenge that, you know, parents come to us when their child is facing a challenge in any area, whether it's educational or social or behavioral um, And we try to, you know, play detective and make sense of what's going on. And to do that, we use some standardized tests. We use our observational skills. Um, I'm a doctoral level psychologist, and that's an important part of, I guess, the first requirement for being a neuropsychologist. Um, And then the next part would be advanced training in neuropsychology through clinical experience, either a a postdoc or fellowship, something like that. Um, so that's in addition to, right? So it's, a, it's because I think neuropsychologists, right, when we hear neuropsychologists, I've said in our part of the world, in the Northeast, that makes sense to us. But there's many people across the rest of the country who are like, wait, what's the difference between a neurologist, a neuropsychologist, and a psychologist? <laughs> yeah. It, it never made sense to me until I became one. So I fully understand <laughs> the confusion. <laughs> I had a friend who was a neuropsychologist. I was like, what do you do? How do you do? (laughs) So, um, yeah, we'll spend a few minutes. I mean, a lot of the other, the, the, the other people who are in the same area, the neurologist, um, is, is actually quite different. It's a medical doctor who's gone through medical school and specialized, um, post-medical school training. And they're the people who do the EEGs and the brain scans and, um, really look for, uh, they're much more biologically focused on neurological issues, strokes, um, epilepsy, those kinds of things. We really work much more um, as a psychologist to look at behavior, and we don't go into the brain. We don't do scans. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> um, not even EEG recordings. Um, and we really look at um, a child's behavior through the use of some standardized tests um, and try to put together a picture of who the child is in a very holistic way. Right. And I think that's, that's really important. And so can you shed some light on what uh, those evaluations, what, what the different types of evaluations are? So um, there are, there are a lot of different kinds of evals that you 
run across when you're working with children or adults. And um, some of them are like a speech language eval, which um, obviously would be interested in looking at a child's or adult's speech and language, communication skills in general. Um, occupational therapy or physical therapy evals, look at those specialized areas. And the neuropsych eval tries to be the most comprehensive of all of those. So um, we try to look at uh, all different kinds of things. We look at a child's um, uh, cognitive functioning, their intellectual ability, how much intellectual horsepower do they bring to the world? What's their vocabulary knowledge and their problem-solving skills? Um, we look at language processing and how well they communicate and use language to navigate the world. We look at visual spatial processing, um, and that's really important, particularly in comparison to language. Um, we look at executive function skills, which is how well can they regulate their attention and um, focus their attention and think flexibly to problem solve in different kinds of situations. Um, we look at working memory and processing speed. Um, we look at their, we try to look at their social and emotional functioning. Um, how well can they interact with uh, their peers and us? And um, emotional functioning, how, you know, how well they calm themselves and regulate their emotions. There's probably a few other things that I'm missing <laughs> in there, but you get the drift. Right. A lot. <laughs> and the yeah, no, I, I know. It's a lot. And the that, point, and let me just finish. The ahead. point is that um, we would tailor, that, that's kind of the general outline of a neuropsych eval. We would tailor that eval given the particular question. I did forget to mention academics, so we, we put in their academics too. Yeah. So if someone is coming in with a child who's extremely bright, but they have a question about their emotional functioning, we might not spend that much time on academics. Uh, conversely, if somebody comes in with a, they say, oh, my kid's wonderful, socially, emotionally, just a star, but we're really worried about their reading. Then we would have a very different kind of eval. Using a lot of the same basics, we try to get a baseline on a lot of different skills, but we really hone in and individualize the eval to the specific referral questions that the parents are concerned about. Yeah, and that's that's it's it's great because I think it's awesome that you're like, oh, I forgot the <laughs> academic part because, <laughs> because right, that's a lot of times how people exactly. get to Often you. It is or the main question. To... Sometimes it's not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and and sometimes the the academic piece is as a result of right. all of those exactly. other things that yeah, you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think it's great that you have that that more holistic lens, as you said. And and so since there's so many different pieces to uh, an evaluation, what um what would some of those what would some of those steps actually look like? Like I've seen you do you know some demonstrations in um, in trainings that we've done together. But what is what does that look like? What should a parent expect? I guess yeah. maybe that's what I'm getting um, at. You know. I think an important thing, because we try to get a really holistic look at the child, one of the things is that just a very basic premise is that it's usually one person working with the child as they do all of these kinds of tests, because these different kinds of tasks, because we really need to see, as you said, Ilya, you know, sometimes there are academic problems that are really the result of anxiety. Um, or low frustration right. tolerance, um, or visual spatial problems. So we really need to look at all these things with the same lens and at the end of the day be able to put it together and say, well, I know he scored poorly on the map, but it's really because he was, you know, so, so nervous during that um, test. Um, so specifically what it looks like. Um, I, I guess we could start, we always, we typically start with an IQ test. And um, as I often say, we don't do that. So we can, you know, say, oh, your child has an IQ of X and they're labeled that way for life. Right. <laughs> I think people have, a people have, right. a, you know, for good reason, concerns about the IQ tests. And we don't really take it as a be all and end all in terms of the child's IQ, but it does have a lot of really great tasks that allow us to see how a child thinks and processes information and problem solves in different situations. So the IQ test itself has some language processing, like what's the child's vocabulary knowledge. It has some visual spatial 
tests. So we ask ch children to rearrange, create designs in blocks um, and look at visual puzzles. Um, it has some problem solving tests. So we ask kids to look at patterns and patterns they've never seen before. And they have to figure out how do I, how do I understand what's going on in this pattern? And then what, what would come next in this pattern? Um, we look at working memory, so we ask them to repeat a bunch of digits and then repeat digits in reverse order. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of, you know, challenging tasks, and some kids think this is great fun and others not so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, I mean, depending on the age you're working yeah. with, it would be, it would look very different. Yes, that's sure. true. It's it's obviously weird. Um, we have different versions, um, just of all the tests for preschoolers, school age, and high school, and then adults. So it, it would look very different. Um, the preschool versions tend to be more playful and tend to be appropriate, um, you know, appropriately challenging for the age of the child. Right. And so when you're look when you're working with um, uh, a younger child, how, what are you looking for? I know some of the pieces are, you know, joint attention and, um, you know, things like um, communication and you were mentioning patterns. So what does some of those activities look like? Um, so I think some of the, um, when you're looking for, with a very young child, um, we're really often interested in, um, I want to really self-regulation. Um, how well are they able to attend and focus and, um, work on the tasks that we present? Um, when it's a question, often when it's young, young children, it's a question of um, autism or not. And in those cases, um, we're looking, as you said, joint attention. Um, we have a test called the ADOS that um, starts, with, starts with toys. <laughs> we just put toys out <laughs> on the table and, uh, and ask children to play with them and see what they do. And in that, it's, you get a lot of information and the ADOS allows us to really score a lot of things like eye contact, reciprocity, which just is, does the child want to engage with the evaluator or not? Um, do they try to, you know, engage and play with that person? Um, and then we look for their creativity and ability to um, animate various figures, you know, human-like kind of dolls that are put out and things like that. Um, and then that test also, well, for very young children, <laughs> when we can't engage them in other ways, <laughs> um, it has some very irresistible type of activities that I, I haven't, I think I've rarely seen a child be able to uh, not get interested in. Um, some one of those is blowing bubbles. <laughs> we have a bubble machine that we kind of blow bubbles and. And the point is to get the child to show enjoyment and then to share that enjoyment. Um, back to the, the question of joint attention. Joint attention is really like when someone is interested in something, do they look at it and then look to another person in the room to share that interest uh, to see if they can get their attention to it. And it's it's um it sounds maybe a little obscure, but it's actually a very uh, natural automatic reaction for almost any child who's not on the autism spectrum. And similarly, when we're doing something like bubbles, we look for shared enjoyment, which is, um, again, just such a natural reaction for young kids. So if they're laughing about the bubbles, they're probably going to look to their parent and give a big laugh and try to get them to share their enjoyment or the evaluator. Um, and when we don't see that, it's, um, it's a concern. Um, Right. So they might enjoy the, the activity, um, the bubbles. Again, I, it's rare that I've seen children that <laughs> right. like bubbles, yeah. um, <laughs> no matter how, I think yeah. no matter what age. Um, but that, and it is so yeah. subtle, right? That piece of them not sharing it with you. And as I know for me as a new parent, for my, you know, my son's my first, um, I wouldn't, I didn't notice that yeah. at the very beginning, yeah. right? Because it, it, you don't have another point right. of reference, but when you have an outside observer noticing, it, it, it sheds that light and you yeah. go, oh yeah, I didn't, 
I didn't realize that they didn't ask me to play with them or show me that really cool thing that they were excited about. Yeah, and because as a parent, you're just so excited to see your child happy, right? To see that bubbly, infectious laughter that you're (laughs) grinning. You know, you're not really. And I think that's part of the, you know, part of the training of the ADOS um, is really to look for those things. You mentioned showing them. That's just another thing that we look for. Does the child ever take a toy that they love and show it to their parent? Usually with young children, their parents are, are always in the room. Older children, not so much. Right. But, um, yeah, and pointing is another. And, you know, it gets to one of, the, um, one of the key things about autism is whether a child is um, actively engaged in relationship with other people. Do they, you know, are they, again, reciprocal? Do they care about what other people think or um, are doing and it gets you know to the point where with some kids who don't have that kind of level of reciprocity or or interest in others um, they will you know use somebody else's hand to get something that they want they're not seeing a a person as another person but more like a a tool so it's it's right you do the ados requires some you know some fairly serious training to, to be able to do it. And it really is looking for those kinds of things and then um, coding them correctly so you get a, a reliable score um, that does give us a score in some of those areas. Eye contact being another obvious, that's maybe more obvious to the to the lay untrained <laughs> observer whether someone's right. taking eye contact <laughs> or not. Yeah. Right. And so the, the ADOS, that's A-D-O-S, yeah, It's the right? Autism Diagnostic and Observation Schedule. Great. Okay, cool. That way, so our family, I know in the beginning I would hear that and then I recognized it was, um, it was an evaluation yeah, yeah. tool. And then it's like, wait, what does that stand yeah. for? Right? And it's interesting <laughs> because, again, it's not um, a standardized test in the way that we test, um, you know, language or vocabulary knowledge. But the people who developed it have worked very hard to make it a um, something, like I said, that you can code. So eye contact, eye contact is either a zero, which is typical, or a one or a two. And then you kind of add these scores up. Mm-hmm. And the higher score means you're more likely, the child is more likely to have autism. Um, it should never be used by itself. And maybe this is a good time to kind of go into the <laughs> how do we oh, use definitely. that? Oh, definitely. Yeah, we, no, this is great. How do we use that? And, um, right. you know, the, the people who developed the ADOS, a woman named Elaine Lord, has worked tirelessly to make this a useful tool. Um, and the, the, the things that we do code for on the ADOS align very closely with the DSM diagnosis so that makes it you know, more consistent for us evaluators. Um, but when you talk about, you know, opening up the bigger question of how do we diagnose autism in general, um, they, they, you know, Elaine Lord and her cohort um, claim that the ADOS is the gold standard for this, and it certainly is the best tool we have. Like I said, it's a group of activities, so we, we present a lot of fun right. activities, and then we, we score it. So it's a group of, uh, of varied activities. It takes about an hour. Um, it's certainly, like I said, the best tool. It's not the only tool, and it shouldn't be used in isolation. And, and even the people who developed it would agree with that. They always say this is one piece of evidence. So we also have to um, use, you know, we always have to, in any neuropsych eval, use the results of the tests that we get in combination with our clinical observation, which is why you want someone who really knows a lot about um, child development, for one, and um, psychological processes for another. Um, And then um, we also have to look at the child's history um, and look at parent um, report. And if we can, we we always try to get teacher report, you know, preschool teacher for a young child or daycare daycare, uh, teacher. Um, So we have to put all those pieces of data together before we sort of draw conclusions. Um, I think one thing that um, made that kind of stunningly clear for me is, um, well, when it when it's the question of autism, one of the requirements for a diagnosis of autism is that these behaviors have been consistent. Um, these behaviors have been present since the early developmental period. So we can't, you know, if somebody, somebody comes in and all of a sudden they look like they need 
criteria for autism, but nobody has seen any difficulties before in the past. We've got a real issue. <laughs> um, so I always clarify, the child doesn't have to have been diagnosed with autism in the early developmental period. We have many people who are adults who are just getting diagnosed. But the same, the same behaviors, the same concerning social issues need to have been present relatively consistently throughout their life. Um, the, the, the case I, a case I had recently was a kid who was um, uh, seriously traumatized um, and that caused some behaviors that looked like autism. And it's really tricky to kind of tease hmm. that out. But that's where the history is so important because, you know, you don't just catch autism at the age of 10. Um, it really has to have right. been um, a, neurolo it's a neurological based disorder. That we, and, and, and again, not to say it's, it's, it's stable and unchanging. It, it very much varies throughout a person's life depending on their situation, um, either the, the supports they get or, or sadly sometimes the supports they don't get, they can look worse as they get older. Um, and, you know, emotional stability is an important um, piece of it. We all do better when we're not anxious, terrified, <laughs> all those other things. Yeah, so. you think? I think so. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of variability, but again, there has to be some consistency. Yeah. So you, when you're, when I'm listening to all of the different pieces and, you know, two things kind of come to mind. It's one is then if we're looking at all of this information and then, you know, creating, a, I mean, basically like a, a picture, a whole picture, a holistic picture of this child um, or adult, we need, you know, you need a lot of background. And like you said, a lot of training to be able to kind of put all that yeah. together. So I think my, my first question is then who, I, I think we talked of, have talked about this a little bit before, you need a substantial background to be able to kind of do a holistic type of evaluation. Yeah. So who are we talking about as far as who can actually evaluate? I mean, at least I know here uh, in the U.S., um, I know you're, <laughs> you said you're a doctor level psychologist, but who else can do this type of evaluation? Yeah, so um, as far as the diagnosis of autism, we did talk about this before. We, I, we think that legally <laughs> in the United States, it's either a medical doctor, um, and that would typically be someone like a, a developmental pediatrician um, or a doctoral right. level psychologist. Um, it's, yeah, we were discussing the fact that it's getting a little dicey because um, school psychologists sometimes try to weigh in on a diagnosis. And if they're a master's level, they probably really shouldn't be doing that. Um, I think, right. you know, more important than that, obviously that's important, the level of training you have. But, you know, most of us gain most of our good experience in the field, post, whatever, <laughs> degree we got <laughs> in, in, in training sites, right. fellowships, postdocs. Um, and so, you know, I think the qualifications, it's not that that degree is important, but more important is experience, um, clinical experience right. that you gain through working um, it under good supervision for years. And again, like I was saying, kind of gaining, you know, you can't do the ADOS if you don't really understand child development, if you don't really understand what's an appropriate level of language for a child of three, um, what's an appropriate you know, social behavior, or even, you know, what level of impulsivity is okay for a child of three or four, those kinds of things that, that really, right, that makes yeah, sense. That yeah, you need to develop. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess the other piece that I, I think then is many schools, let's say a teacher raises concerns um, to a family and then to the school uh, or a parent recognizes that there are some challenges. And hopefully by the time we get to this place, there's been several conversations between the family and teachers and so on. Um, but the schools are doing evaluations mm -hmm. too. So that could be the next mm -hmm. piece. So um, how are those evaluations different than, you know, the the intense one that yeah. you're talking about? I mean, I know they both can be very intense, but what's the what's yeah. the difference? I there? mean, I think the main difference is the purpose. Um, 
school evaluations are conducted um, as a way to determine whether a child um, needs special education services. So it's really um, a question of, is this child far enough behind in, in, and it's typically the focus in schools is academics. They also though are legally required to consider if a child is behind socially, um, if a child has significant emotional issues um, or, uh, or, or motor issues where, you know, be an occupational therapist or physical therapist. But what happens with the school based evaluations, they will kind of have different people do each of those evals. And um, so they'll have speech language, look at the language, they'll have an, a special educator typically look at the academic skills, they'll have a school psychologist do a cognitive or intellectual IQ test, um, along with maybe some, you know, emotional questionnaires with the parent, emotional social questionnaires with the parents. Um, and the, the main difference there is, well, again, two main differences. One, like I said, the goal is really just to see, are they below average enough in any given area that they need special education services? It's not a holistic look at the child per se. And, and that's, that's not a criticism. That's the goal. The goal is really just to, right. to find whether they get a cutoff for special ed. Um, and the second main difference, again, is that different people are doing these. So you do lose some of the, the holistic, uh, you know, there's no one person pulling it all together. And so where that really becomes, you know, where that really makes a difference, um, I think the most, most problematic situation that we see most commonly are those kids who are super smart, <laughs> who, who can get through all of these standardized tests. <laughs> um, and, and do fine, you know, score within the average range at least. Um, but, you know, where they they may have a, um, you know, one academic skill, say writing, that is, you know, in the low end of the average range, where they have an IQ that's 135, and they should be doing much, much better than that. Well, you know, does the right. child need special ed? According to the school, no, because the child is, you know, working within the average range in all skills. And you can see how that sort of makes some sense. <laughs> but on the other hand, <laughs> we know from all, from all right. of us, we know from our experience that when we've had a kid who has a brilliant brain and wonderful, you know, verbal skills and great thinking process and can't get it out in writing, then you've got a real problem because that child is almost certainly going to have anxiety around that issue and, um, you know, be underperforming and, and be aware of it. Um, so that's, that's one of the, the main issues. I don't, um, there are many schools, particularly we're, you know, blessed in the Boston area of having some very, very good public schools who have good people on staff who do good jobs. But I think it is important to recognize the different, the, the, the different goals of the two vows. So the neuropsych, again, yeah, is really definitely. trying to say, who is this child holistically? And if they have anxiety around writing um, and they have that, huge gap that I was referencing before, um, that's a problem that any parent would want to help that child, you know, gain their skills in writing so that they can work up to their potential. Right. And then I would, so I know for, um, for my experience, I know that we had um, a neuropsych done and actually it was through a pediatric neurologist, mm -hmm. right? So we're talking again, mm -hmm. a different version. Um, so we did have MRIs mm -hmm. and we did have, you know, just to let's eliminate anything, you know, biological, like you said. Uh, but then we did have many of these other tests, parent input, teacher input. Um, and the school was so yeah. resistant where yeah. we were at the time. And then when we moved here to Massachusetts, it was a different perspective. And it was right away, we did have, so we experienced both yeah. within a year, yeah, which was the neuropsych process. And then, right, the educational process where you know, my son got seen by many different yeah. people. Um, and it was, it was for me as a parent, I was like, wow, someone's finally paying yeah. attention. And I think that was great. Um, but, you know, from his perspective now as an adult reflecting back, he felt very, um, like he was being pulled in so many directions and he got pulled out of class and it, he was only nine, yeah. right? Nine and 10. So he felt 
you know, like, wait, no one else is having any of this done. And what is happening? And all of these adults asking me questions and having me do these weird tasks. So, um, you know, now I recognize that that felt for him a little Mm -hmm. intrusive. And, uh, and, and, you know, I don't know if other, have you heard that other um, kids or even adults feel that way? I think it's probably different with an adult seeking an evaluation, but what are your thoughts yeah, on no, that? it's really interesting. It's, um, I think, um, you know, you see such different um, reactions from kids. I think when you have a child who is, um, who who is, who is intellectually quite bright, they often find um, a lot of the puzzles and games kind of fun. That's kind of what gifted kids do in general is they like to think and challenge and themselves and problem solve but a lot of the other things that we do and and that's a small obviously that's a small minority of children so I think for a lot of other kids it can feel very difficult um it's exhausting for a lot of kids we um at our group practice we do two two and a half hour sessions with a break between those um in the middle of those sessions But during that time, it's one-on-one with me asking this child to do different kinds of thinking processes and produce work and, you know, challenge themselves in all different ways. And, you know, for some kids, it's really, it's really hard. And and again, often kids come out exhausted. So I think it's um, something really important that we need to pay attention to. Um, And then the other point that you're kind of asking is what, Sorry, if, if a child is limited or really has low frustration tolerance, we often have more sessions. We would break it into three or four sessions and, you know, shorten each one um, to, to accommodate that. Um, but then the other, you know, point that you're bringing up is the kid feeling like, why are these people asking me to do all these things? <laughs> what is it <laughs> right. like my being right. poked and prodded and challenged in all these different ways when, you know, my all my other friends are out on recess. <laughs> Um, and, um, you know, I think we try to explain it at the beginning as just saying, um, you know, telling kids we're doing this because everybody, everybody thinks in different ways. Everybody has different strengths and weaknesses. Everybody's brain is different. And all with young kids, I'll even say like, you know, think about your best friend, your best friend, what flavor of ice cream does she like, you know, and what flavor do you like? Oh, but man, people are so different. I, I like pistachio, you know, just keeping it really concrete. Um, but then a little older, you might say, you know, there's some kids in your class who are really good at reading and others who really struggle with that. And nobody's, nobody's dumb. You know, it's just different people have different strengths. And what we try to do is figure out what you're really good at. And then also figure out, you know, what, what things you might need some extra work on. And I try to talk about, you know, just like, if you want to be a better runner, you want to build your running muscles, you have to run every day, you practice. And so you can get better at reading if you practice. And they love, they love hearing that. Um, <laughs> um, <Right. laughs> but, but the point is we try to give some explanation of it ahead of time. I, I think we probably don't do enough. We probably could use much more. I had one kid because <laughs> um, I think he, he was coming in for something like, you know, attention or reading. And a part way through, he kind of looks at me and I'm asking him to do some drawing test. He's like, what does this have to do with my reading? <laughs> Right. That's a good well, question. <laughs> and most kids are not, are too polite to ask it, so uh, I had to kind of go through the whole thing again. You right, know, trying to get your strengths and weaknesses. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that I think is really invaluable that we do um, at our practice um, is um, give a, a debrief or a feedback to the child um, after the whole process is over. We talk to the parents in a feedback first, just so we are on the same page, because sometimes parents might not be, you know, they want to think about how they're going to tell their child they have ADHD or, you know, more, more significantly how the child, it, how to tell a child that they, that they have autism. Those are big questions and we don't want to skim over that. So we will meet with the parents first and kind right. of agree on what what's going on. And then also, how do we talk to your child about this? Um and then we'll have a meeting with the child. We used to do it only for, I think we started this years ago, we started only 
for kids like over the age of 13 or 14. And I've been doing it, um, basically talking about it with a lot of parents of younger children and feeling like it's really useful for many, a younger child as well. Um, and so again, asking the parents if they think it would be useful and then um, uh, tailoring a message that the child can understand. Um, as part of that, I, I try very hard to keep it jargon-free for kids. Sometimes I won't even say, I might not use the term autism or ADHD. I might say things like, you know, here's, you're really good at all these things, but sometimes you, um, you know, one thing you need to work on is um, listening to other people and, and, and understanding the perspective. That's something that you should, you know, let's focus on that a little bit, right. um, which is a very kind of specific targeted thing um, that then can be hopefully addressed in social skills groups or therapy or something like that. So really naming the something that the child can um, connect to, not just a, not just a diagnostic label that can feel kind of off-putting. So that's my long-winded answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's, um, I think it makes sense because uh, I think we don't, we don't do a great job of talking to kids, especially younger ones, about what's what's actually happening. And I, and I've talked about this before with other uh, with other sessions about you know what we're talking about a little bit is yeah. disclosure, yeah. right? So like helping the parents understand the diagnosis and then helping them you know work with the child and then having a team of people be able to explain yeah. that, especially in different mm-hmm. ways, I think is valuable because then the child gets a sense of who they are and what they're working on and what they're really good yeah. at and what they need to work on and that that will change as they yeah. get older, uh, you know, and it'll morph, it'll look different. Um, so, I mean, as I think about that, and I know uh having seen some of your evaluations and talked uh, talked to you before, what is the output from when you do an evaluation that comes to the parents, right? Like, and then they can take yeah. that and bring it to schools and, and Yeah, what so have we you. do the verbal feedback where we go over the results and kind of make sure that this makes sense to the parents and we're all on the same page. And then we produce um, a fairly lengthy report. Um, mine tend to run somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 pages. Um, with a lot of scores wow. and <laughs> a lot of <laughs> tables and numbers, but um, hopefully um, some, you know, readable, comprehensible um, impressions and then some pretty significant recommendations as to what should be done. Um, so often, you know, when we get called in, the document is something that the parents will use to go to the school to clarify, you know, look at the bottom of all of this, there is this question of social skills, or there's a question of anxiety, and really need to address that across the board, not just in, you know, once a week with the therapist or whatever. Um, they can often use the report to um, advocate for uh, more appropriate services. Right, right. No, that totally makes sense. And uh, I think it's great to have that. And oftentimes it would be coupled with, you know, some evaluations that the school is doing. And then we kind of marry the two and come up with a plan and hopefully a pretty comprehensive, um, you know, IEP for the student, which, you know, and some of it I know would be done in school, some of it outside. So I know there's all different configurations that can yeah. happen there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, um, I know you do all different ages of evaluations. Do you, um, I'm, I'm curious, I think, and then maybe I'm wrong and let me know that with younger children, it's, it's parents are noticing something, maybe early educators are noticing something. Um, and I know evaluations can happen super young, like, right, like 24 months. Yeah. Right and, and sometimes even younger, um, you know, we have a few instruments that are really geared for young children. Um, the Bailey is a test of, of developmental skills for, I you know, I don't know what the lower edge of it is. I probably infancy because um, often that is used. So the, uh, when you have a very young child, again, you're you're often looking at 
some pretty serious developmental issues. In other words, language isn't coming in or motor skills aren't happening. Um, those, those very early um, skills. And so we have a few instruments that um, can look at those. Um, you know, the younger the child, the less, I would say, the less reliable the, 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 maybe it's less predictive. It's mm. less predictive um, in terms of you're not going to take a, you know, the Bailey kind of gives you an age. Your child is functioning cognitively at the 22-month-old level and motor skills are at the 20-month level and things like that. And you're not going right. to take those into, they're not, they may not be anywhere near the same when they're older. Um, but right. but right. it does right. give you a, 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 a baseline. And then, um, you know, under the age of three, um, you can get services through early intervention. Um, and, and usually under the age of three, people have gone to early intervention where there's a free evaluation for exactly these same kinds of things and services that get put in place. Right. And then um, with older, I, I'm actually thinking, I know really up until the, those teen years, uh, people can go again to the school, yeah. they can seek an outside evaluation like what you do, but what about with adults, right? So they've, they've, they finished the yeah. the grade school process and now they're out in the yeah. world and they're like, you know, I'm still feeling like something is off and I was able to kind of make it through. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm still struggling. Yeah. Do you, do you see, uh, and I, I know working uh, with adults in the past, I think I lost mm, you. I think again. I lost you, Ilya. Okay. So the question of adults getting diagnosed, I think, is really interesting. Um, it's become uh, very interesting to me recently because of conversations I've had with people at AANE, which is the Asperger's Autism Network, um, where Ilya and I know each other from. And um, there yes. are, um, it's a, it's a, you know, most most adults. I don't know over the age of what Ilya, thirty, forty grew up in a time when autism yeah. was not really recognized. If it was, it was only the most severe cases that were diagnosed. And there are a lot of adults who, um, I think, as you said, Ilya, walking around thinking, something's not quite right. I've always had this kind of nagging difficulty in social situations, and maybe I have autism. And um, so I've been talking about trying to do um, diagnoses of autism in adults because there just um, aren't that many uh, people who do it well. Um, right. And um, I think the, um, you know, the first question is why would you, what, what, what's, what's the point of, of determining this now? And sometimes there are, you know, real benefits um, like, you know, social security or disability benefits that can be effective. And other times, maybe more often, it's really just a self-understanding, just a self-awareness. I think, um, as Danya would say, that Danya is the head of AANE, would say, you know, it's about finding a community. It's about recognizing that you're not alone. You may have struggled right. with feeling like you're the quirky outsider all your life, and you don't have friends, and you don't understand why. And there are lots of people within the AANE community who might fit that description, and they come to AANE and they have, um, you know, a network of people who respect them <laughs> and listen to them and, 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 you know, do activities right, with sure. them. And, um, uh, it can be a really, um, valuable, a valuable resource and, and, and just a valuable thing for someone's life to gain that kind of community that they may have been missing for the rest of their lives. Can I just add one other thing, Ilya, on another note, when we were talking before about, thank sure. you, when we were talking before about disclosure, um, you, you kind of alluded yeah. to the fact that disclosure is something that should be done by a team of people. And I think it also is something that, um, what I've learned, it, it happens again and again in different ways. In other words, you're talking about autism with a child throughout their life and using, you know, relying on what's happening at that point in time. And it may, it may change. Um, I usually, um, when parents ask me, you know, how do I tell my child, um, I can give some very vague generalities about, you know, you want to put it in positive terms, um, you want to talk about the gifts that it brings, 
Um, you want to use language that they can understand. Um, you want to be sensitive to the fact that for a, a very smart child, um, autism has become common enough that people know what it is and they tend to think of it as the really autistic child. And so some children are kind of like, well, wait, I don't, I don't look anything like that kid who can't talk and who flaps his hands when he walks down the hall. What does this mean? And so, you know, we right. have to point out, mm-hmm. you know, things like um, the show Atypical, which is a really smart kid who's, you know, got Asperger kind of, kind of type of autism. Um, but but really, my go-to answer is to punt and tell people to go to A and E because <laughs> because A and E has recorded a lot of webinars about disclosure. You know, hour-long webinars about how to talk about it. Um, they have support groups for parents who really need more support. You can get coaching if you need it. So I think it's a because it's a complicated process and a very individualized one. Um, I do think like A&E is the kind of go-to place um, for those kind of resources. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I think, and especially as you mentioned for adults, there's, there are not many people doing that type of work. And so um, I think, you know, A&E does an amazing job of connecting adults and um, helping, uh, helping them feel really connected and being able to be part of, um, you know, a community and, and that, that is really, uh, supportive and can help you navigate situations that can be really challenging. So, um, I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and, and, you know, sort of, I I think it was great that you pointed out the, you know, why, why are you seeking the diagnosis? So, and I think you, you touched on the, the, you know, the pros there of feeling connected. Um, and, and I, you know, I know there, I guess maybe there are some cons of receiving a diagnosis, but I'm not really sure for myself what those would be, but because I think it's just more information, but do you see um, maybe even in, you know, teens or uh, young adults where a, a con might yeah, be? Yeah, I think again, um, the, I, I, I don't, I don't see it where it might be a, a, a con for an adult in that, you know, the adult has the ability to disclose as they wish. Um, I think it can be a, a negative experience for some kids, I've had some kids, again, typically, you know, reasonably bright and articulate kids who kind of say, I I don't, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't want that diagnosis. I really don't want, I don't want that diagnosis. And one of the worst situations was where I had a, a family, divorced parents, one who thought the child had autism, one thought she didn't, and the child was getting both mm-hmm. messages from both parents and was so confused and just wanted me to say, do oh, I have hard. autism or not? Do I have autism? And I was like, oh, my <laughs> God, this is, this is awful. So, it, you know, because it can be such a – it feels so binary, right? It feels like yes or no. And, right. and on the yes side is a huge range of behaviors and issues um, with this girl. And, and, again, unfortunately, sometimes the common – understanding of autism is really focused on the lower functioning people with autism who may not speak or may have really odd behaviors and just seem really so a, a, a child with much milder symptoms is not going to relate to that um for this girl that i um was struggling with to i was struggling to work with her in a way that would help her get past the binary you know yes or no because that really wasn't a critical issue i i kind of did um a, 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 what do you call it? A, a lines, like five different lines, spectrum lines, if you will, because we talk about autism as a spectrum, mm-hmm. but it's not just one spectrum. And so when we say high functioning, it's kind of um, misleading because you can be high functioning in one area and not in, in another. So the, right. the lines right. that I had drawn um, were language, social behaviors, um, of repetitive behaviors routines um let's see uh i forget what else certainly intelligence um and so Mm -hmm. there were at least five of them right executive function skills maybe being another and i talked to her about where she was kind of on the line with each of those areas 
And, you know, so it, I, I, I was trying to make it more, less of a yes, no autism and more of a, I'm really good at these things. I've made a ton of progress in this area right. and I still need to work on this area. Um, I'm not sure it was terribly successful. Yeah. But, but. <laughs> no, but I think that's a great way to to teach it. And I know I've I've done that in some educator and clinician trainings that I've done where where, the, you know, autism is sort of like they they thought they understood it in one mm-hmm. way. And then when we talk about all the different facets of it, it's like, oh, wait, but oh, so this is that really can be like autism too. A spectrum yeah. with like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a spectrum with all these different yeah. lines that come off of it. Yeah, no, and, and, it, and it's exactly all of that. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, with all of this information and all the different, I, you know, I, I know sometimes at the end of these types of conversations, it feels, uh, it can feel really overwhelming mm-hmm. to families. And so if, if you're, you know, if you, ha- if you're a parent and you're seeking a diagnosis, what would be like some tips you can provide? Because I know it can take a really long time, depending on which process you mm-hmm. go through. Uh, what would be something you would suggest for families to consider? Um, I think it's, um, it's, it's a tough question because I, I always say it's sort of hard to shop for a neuropsych eval. Um, you, you can't <laughs> go in and say, I mean, I, I, I suggest that people interview people ahead of time. I'm always open to that. Neuropsychologists tend to be pretty busy mm-hmm. and some might not, you know, want to take the time, but I think if they, I think they should be able to and willing to, right. <laughs> in my right. opinion. Right, for sure. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's important to, um, gosh, it's, it's important to find a neuropsychologist that you, know is experienced. Um, um, it's also, again, it's just hard to know ahead of time how good the product is going to be. The best way is really through recommendations from friends or school districts or something like that. Um, I don't know. Am I missing something here, Ilya? Is there no. no, I mean, I think one of the things when I um, I had done some work with the the Mass Act Early and the CDC Act Early initiative, and you know they offer some great resources and some suggestions, um, and it's it's nationwide, so you can kind of go uh-huh. to your state, and there's ambassadors for each state. Uh, but again, we're only talking up to age uh-huh. five, but even still, you know there are checklists and things for um, pediatricians yeah. and family doctors to review. And sometimes I think it's funny because I know even going to uh, my own children's pediatrician at one point, she had asked me, you know, many years ago, okay, so wait, who do you use for like a psychologist? And who would, you know, so it just shows you, right, they can only hold so much information. But, um, but I think, you know, that could be another way is, um, Sometimes, you know, a, a, a pediatrician can help or your family physician or perhaps a psychologist right. that, you know, you know, or that you you might be seeing, or maybe your child's already in a social group, but maybe you haven't totally gone through the diagnosis process. So I think, yeah, it, it's, it's unfortunate there's no, like, yeah. go-to. I it's mean, again, I think organizations like a <laughs> <laughs> right, right. The consumer yeah. reports of, you know, who to find. Um, but but yeah, organizations as well, like looking for family advocacy groups. That's a good uh, idea. Yeah. The, ab- really the advocates have a really, yeah. um, really good handle on who does good evals and who doesn't because they have to work with those evals as as they go, especially right. advocates, <laughs> as, they, as they take the evals to the school. Um, you know, I think one thing that... Um, is uh, one thing I see a lot is that the difference between a really good eval and a terrible eval, um, yes, part of it is the skill of the evaluator. A good part of it is just how much time the person puts into the eval. And um, maybe I just say this defensively because I put a lot of time into mine. (laughs) I'm not efficient. I know you do. I know you do. But, but, you know, I think there's a question about really making sure that you're comprehensive and, um, you know, the worst kind of evals that I've seen, I think one I saw, I think 
it was maybe from a medical professional who probably shouldn't have been mm-hmm. uh, trying to do what they were doing, but they gave the parents a questionnaire about the kids' social skills and on the basis of that diagnosed autism. And I thought that was just almost criminal. You know, you, you, you really need yeah. to observation of the child and yeah all the all those other things so i think yeah that to me exemplifies the you know what happens when you do a uh too short cut and paste kind of or or um just very cursory about so you know i think if you are a parent shopping you might ask the evaluator what what actual what tests will you be doing and um you can write them down and look them up later and <laughs> make sure that you're going to get a comprehensive right, yeah. get a comprehensive assessment. Right, and that's the suggestion I've made for, you know, the the educational process too is asking what evaluations are you looking to do and why and what mm-hmm. are they for and what should mm-hmm. I expect mm-hmm. afterwards? Uh, and it, it, I know it is a lot of information. And, and back to your point before, while we know, um, you know, that we, we have to have in, in the U.S. particular credentials, MD, PhD, uh, for an evaluation, just because you have those credentials doesn't mean, doesn't mean doing a good job. you right. can do it or you've, right, and you've had the experience to do that. Um, and, and I would argue, right, there are people who have so much more, even educators in the classroom have so much more experience and exposure who yeah. are working one-on-one with students on a daily yeah. basis. So, so yeah, that's all the, uh, those are all the things to consider. And now, honestly, with online, um, you can Anything. Google, <laughs> you can Google practitioners, yeah. right. And see what people yeah. say and kind of form your, form your opinion and, and that way. One other well. caveat that, um, is sometimes important. Um, some, uh, people who are based in ho- typically based in hospitals, not all hospitals, but some of the hospitals will not um, have policies against their, uh, you know, psychologists or neuropsychologists um, going to school meetings. And again, depending on the situation, but if you feel like your school, like your initial school area, if you feel like the school is going to be resistant, you may need the right. advocate, you may need an advocate, you may need a lawyer, but you may also really need the neuropsychologist to come to the school to back up their report. And it sounds ridiculous, but um, I have been in situations where it's very contentious between the school and the parents, not that it's always the school's fault, but um, but when I'm not in the meeting, they will you know, tell the parent all kinds of things about how awful the report is and how inadequate or wrong or whatever. When I'm in the meeting, it's a very much a very polite and cordial situation, you know, conversation. It's just infuriating. (laughs) (laughs) Really. Sometimes just that presence. Yeah, no, I know. And sometimes they can be still contentious, but I can back it up. You know, I can, I can say, this is why I think X, Y, and Z. And yeah. So again, some if you do if you are in that kind of situation with um, a school where you think they're going to be resistant, you might want to make sure that your evaluator would be able to go to a meeting with you if necessary. Not that it's always necessary, but it is necessary or helpful. Sure. No, that makes sense, and and I I appreciate you saying that because I think uh, it's really important to have those you know, those people able to support right. you in, in meetings because, um, because it is so important. And, you know, you're talking about the, the level of detail, um, on a report and how much time you spend, you know, we are really talking about a child's yeah. future here. Yeah. So I think it, it really makes sense. And, you know, the schooling experience and what type of supports a child has through their developmental years is just so critical, yeah. um, for what, adult life will look like that I think it's important to spend that time and not just one little checklist or maybe two or three, but still, um, yeah, definitely. So Nancy, it's been great. Thank you so much for all of this information. And, um, if people need to reach out to you, where can they find you? Um, probably the easiest is email and my newest email that I'm checking most regularly is, is Nancy at drnancyrosa.com. Excellent. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, and um, we'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. Also, if you join our email list at thespectrumstrategy.com, you can get a code to attend one of my online courses for free. See you next time.